So good evening. Last night I briefly mentioned how the Buddha framed all of his teachings in terms of cultivating what he called the middle way, which is the balance point between extremes. The extreme on one hand of austerity and self-punishment, and on the other, the extreme of self-indulgence. And these are two ways that we commonly become unbalanced in relation to sense pleasures. So some of us can develop a kind of puritanical fear of anything pleasant, unconsciously or unconsciously try to avoid it. While other of us fall more into a kind of a hedonism approach and seek sense pleasure at every opportunity. So last night I spent quite a bit of time talking about dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress, suffering. So tonight I thought in the service of this middle way, trying to make sure that we stay in balance, I should talk about sukha which some of you may know is the opposite of dukkha. It's a Pali word that means it's a Pali word that means happiness. It sounds a little bit similar to our English word sugar. So I think of it as the sweetness, the sweetness that helps the very potent medicine of the Dharma go down. And I want to highlight the importance of happiness in the Buddha's teachings because based on my own experience and also working with many students there is a common misperception that the Buddha's teachings are all about suffering therefore anything that's not dukkha or perhaps something that's actually pleasant is something we're supposed to avoid And even the Buddha himself had that misunderstanding, that unskillful relationship to pleasure early on in the development of his practice. So last night I gave a brief history of his life and you might remember that I described how he left his life of hedonism in the palace and went off on a spiritual quest. And he worked with some of the most highly renowned teachers of his day who were doing various forms of very intense austerity practices. So there was a belief in India at that time that spiritual freedom came from pretty much torturing the body. As I said, sleeping on beds of nails and not sleeping at all and hardly eating anything. And the Buddha did all this until he was actually on the verge of death. He became so weak and emaciated And at that point, fortunately for us, he had a breakthrough. And he had a sudden, spontaneous memory of being a young boy, about six or seven years old. And the sutta says that in this memory, he was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, watching his father, the king, take part in a harvest ceremony. And it sounds to me like he was physically relaxed and he was mentally relaxed and his mind just spontaneously slipped into jhana, which is a form of deep absorption or concentration that's very pleasant, very, um, it's a strong form of happiness. 
And when the Buddha-to-be had this memory of the happiness he'd experienced as a child, he thought to himself, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities? I thought, I am no longer afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities. And this was a real turning point in his practice. He started to bring in the cultivation of mental happiness. And it said that not long after this insight, he woke up, he attained nibbana, complete freedom of heart and mind. Then over the next 45 years or so, he wandered all over India, helping people to realize the same happiness that he'd found. So in a nutshell, these teachings are aimed at releasing us from the craving for ordinary sense-based pleasures, because ultimately these don't last. As we heard last night, they're impermanent, they're unsatisfactory, they're dukkha. So by contrast, we need to train ourselves to experience mental pleasure, the kind of happiness that can be known independent of external conditions being in any particular way. And this sukha happiness is a pleasure that comes from cultivating skillful mental states, such as the ease and calm that I've been emphasizing, or the four Brahma-Vahara qualities that I mentioned on opening night, the states of metta or kindness, compassion, joy and equanimity, We can experience sukha or mental happiness when the awakening factors are present. Some of you are familiar with these very skillful qualities. Mindfulness is the first of these. So the other day I invited you to notice how does the mind feel when mindfulness is present? And you could check again even now. What's it like to be present, alert, aware? probably a subtle form of happiness, quite refined, but certainly more pleasant, more happy than when we're distracted, scattered, agitated, and so on. So sukha is also a factor in the practice of the jhana practices where the mind goes into deep concentration, deep absorption. So sukha has a very important role in the Buddha's teachings. And yet for most of us, perhaps especially in the beginning of our practice, it can seem that this sukha or happiness is tantalizingly just out of reach. We might experience occasional moments of it, but if we actively try to go after it, if we try to make it happen, we usually end up tying ourselves in knots. So we can have... At times, almost accidentally, these experiences of ease and peace and happiness, maybe a bit of bliss. But as one U.S. Dharma teacher famously put it, there's nothing that ruins the rest of your retreat quite so much as having a really good sitting. So we think, we recognize that sense of once we get a taste of it, how quickly it leads to craving a relatively subtle form of craving, but craving nonetheless, which, as we know, is the first and second noble truths. 
that gra- grasping causes suffering. So going after happiness isn't such a helpful strategy, but what we can do is set up the conditions that help sukha to arise. And the good news is that being here on retreat is a very good start. This is because the retreat container, the retreat container itself, is deliberately set up to support the arising of skillful mental states, the kind of states that lead to sukha or happiness. And there are five particular aspects of being on retreat that I want to highlight because they do so powerfully support the cultivation of happiness. These five are silence, solitude, simplicity, slowing down, and stillness. Silence, solitude, simplicity, slowing down, and stillness. And I wanted to name these and emphasize them because I've noticed how increasingly over the last few years there's been a tendency to misunderstand the purpose of these and as a result to undermine their value. And I've been thinking about this and I think it's partly because they they run so counter to mainstream values values which tend towards consumerism and sense pleasures and the hedonism I mentioned earlier. The sense pleasures that the Buddha warned don't lead us anywhere useful. So if we don't understand, if we have no right view, no understanding of the Four Noble Truths, then we'll come on retreat with this wanting to have our cake and eat it too, as they say. So I see people coming on retreat who want to have all the benefits of being on retreat, but they also want to be able to chat to their friends whenever they feel lonely. They want to be able to watch a few videos if they get bored. They want to be able to dance to their favorite music when they need a bit more stimulation. They want to be able to zip into town for a quick cup of coffee when they need a craving for a hit of caffeine. So I hope I'm not planting too many ideas here. (laughs) But more and more, the retreat container starts to become more like a colander full of holes. And in contrast to the strength of those craving habits, the virtues of silence and solitude, simplicity, slowing down and stillness might even start to sound like a kind of punishment. Now, I know most of you here are quite well experienced. You've done quite a few retreats, so in some ways I might be preaching to the choir. But I'd still like to say a bit more about each of these five supports for happiness to get a sense of just how valuable they are in supporting sukha, happiness, to arise. So the first one, silence, gives us a very precious opportunity to simply listen. To listen not just with our ears, but with all of our senses. When they're not bombarded by the usual hyperstimulation of everyday life, our senses have a chance to come alive. 
And even on the literal level, in the silence here at Temuata, we can hear what's normally drowned out by the clamor of the world. We can hear the Tui's calling with exquisite clarity. We can hear the rain falling and falling and falling. A few weeks before the retreat, uh, the manager, Lorraine, she sent out a poem by Hone Tufare called Rain. I think she might be trying to prepare us for something. So when I read the poem, I thought, yes, that's perfect. And I remembered it today as, as I was listening to the rainfall again. So I thought I'd just read it. This is Rain by Hone Tufare. I can hear you making small holes in the silence. Rain. If I were deaf, the pores of my skin would open to you and shut. And I should know you by the lick of you if I were blind. The steady drum roll around you, the steady drum roll sound you make when the wind drops. The something special smell of you when the sun cakes the ground. But if I should not hear, smell, or feel, or see you, you would still define me, disperse me, wash over me, rain. So it's the silence that makes deep listening possible. And last night I quoted the Thai meditation master Ajahn Buddha Dasa. He was talking about how moments of temporary nibbana are what keep us sane. And perhaps in a similar way, these experiences of silence give our whole systems a rest and help us to hear more clearly, more fully when sounds do arise again. So the second support for sukha to arise is solitude. And again, this might seem counterintuitive because so much of our pleasure out in the world is socially based, comes through contact and interactions with other people. And it's true that we are relational beings. But many of us invest a lot of energy in trying to get other people to make us happy. And inevitably, there'll be times when we aren't successful. And then we might collapse into loneliness and despair. But in terms of finding the balance that's recommended in the middle way, it's solitude that helps us to befriend ourselves first. Because when we, get, when we can get to know ourselves more deeply, and we can offer kindness and compassion to ourselves, then we'll be in a much better position to offer and receive that same deep friendship from others when we come back from retreat. So spending time in solitude can help to strengthen a healthy self-understanding and self-reliance. We get to know ourselves more completely and then we can experience others more fully too. So there's a short haiku poem from the Zen tradition 
that captures this sense of self-knowledge, full knowledge, very beautifully. It's by a female poet, Izumi Shikibu, who lived in the 10th century. Some of you probably know it. She says, Watching the moon at midnight, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. And for me, this poem also connects to the third support for happiness, which is simplicity. In those few short phrases, there's nothing extra, nothing unnecessary. And it's that simplicity that lets us connect directly to the essence of what the poet is expressing. And by contrast, I think most of us live our lives pretty far from that kind of simplicity. We seem to have this compulsive need to burden ourselves with all kinds of stuff, material stuff, but also all kinds of activities, all kinds of busyness of doing and doing and doing. And then we wonder why we feel constantly stressed. But in the Buddha's teachings, he pointed over and over to what he referred to as, quote, the bliss of renunciation. Now, the English word renunciation has some pretty seriously unpleasant connotations. So when we hear this phrase, the bliss of renunciation, it totally doesn't make sense, at least not for me the first time I heard it. But if we think of renunciation more as simplicity, then it might start to make more sense. Because when we can allow ourselves to surrender to the simplicity that being on retreat offers, we can experience a surprisingly profound level of ease and happiness and peace. And it can give us a powerful insight into the truth that having all of our sense pleasures satisfied is not the true way to happiness. And I was lucky to have had a very direct experience of the connection between simplicity and happiness the bliss of renunciation, pretty early on in my own practice, I've shared this experience of being on my first Vipassana retreat in Thailand. And this particular retreat center was owned by a nun, Mei Chi Amon, and she had set it up with two Western insight teachers because she wanted to make Vipassana meditation available to the young Western backpackers who were coming to that place which was a very generous motivation. But as I arrived at the retreat center for that, for the start of the retreat, I noticed a big sign on the notice board. I can't exactly remember the words, but it said something like this. You're not here to change the center. You're not here to change the staff. You're not here to change the teachings. You're not here to change the teachers. You're here to change yourself. And if you're not willing to do that, please don't sign up for the retreat. So this was a fairly <laughs> powerful message. It was a little bit confronting, but I took a deep breath and I signed up anyway. And I soon discovered that by Western standards, the retreat center was quite basic. It was next door to a small monastery and there were no showers. There was no hot water 
There were no flush toilets. We stayed in pretty tiny bamboo huts that had just enough room for two people to lie down next to each other. We slept on bamboo mats on the wooden floor. We had one thin pillow each and one acrylic blanket each. And there was no furniture, so we just hung our clothes from nails on the wall. And the first night I spent a lot of the night mentally composing notes to the managers about different ways they could improve the center. And then I remembered what it said on that notice board about not trying to change anything. So I reluctantly put the note aside. And I was very glad I did because after I'd explored my surroundings a bit more, I realized that we were being offered everything that there was to offer. And to ask for anything more would have not been in the spirit of the generosity that the nuns especially were offering us. So all the cooking was done by a team of pretty elderly Thai nuns. And they were getting up at like 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the morning to cook our breakfast. They had no power. They had no blenders. They had no automatic anything. They were doing absolutely everything by hand, cooking over these in a tiny kitchen over charcoal burners. And the food was pretty delicious. So after a day of realizing that there was really no option, all of my inner whinging just stopped and I got on with being there. And to my amazement, after a couple of days of this simple, even austere life, I think I was just sweeping with a bamboo twig kind of um, broom and a woven bamboo basket to put the leaves in. And I just felt this wave of happiness that was unlike anything I'd ever experienced in my life up until that point. And it lasted for quite a long time. And if you told me beforehand that that would happen, I just wouldn't have believed it. And if there had been an option to upgrade to a single room with an inner sprung mattress and an ensuite bathroom and air conditioning and hot water, I absolutely would have taken it. But I would have missed out on that very valuable experience to see that happiness is not nearly as dependent on being comfortable as I would have believed. And then that message, that understanding was really reinforced for me a few months later when I was in England and I had an opportunity to go on another retreat. It was in a slightly different tradition, but it was advertised as a meditation retreat for women And so I was looking forward to a chance to deepen my meditation practice and hopefully get back some of that bliss that I'd experienced in Thailand. And now at this retreat center, there were, there was hot water and hot showers and flush toilets, of course. And we had inner spring mattresses. We had two fat pillows each and big quilts and electric blankets And there was a library filled with books and all the latest magazines and there were bean bags that we could sit in to read the magazines. And there was an art room with art supplies and there was a coffee machine that was brewing coffee all day long. And it was set in beautiful English countryside with flower gardens and lovely walks to go on. And although on the schedule there was meditation several times a day, I noticed that after a a day or so, not too many people were showing up in the hall. 
And after another day, I wasn't showing up in the hall too much either because, well, there was just too many other interesting things to get involved in. And because this retreat wasn't fully in silence, it wasn't too long before I started to hear from the other retreatants about all the struggles that they were having. One woman was having a really hard time because they only served one brand of black tea and it wasn't her favorite kind. And for somebody else, the inner sprung mattresses just weren't firm enough. And somebody else felt like the water pressure in the showers wasn't quite strong enough. Somebody else thought the salad dressing had too much oil in it. And somebody else thought the coffee machine wasn't keeping the coffee hot enough for long enough. And so it went on and on and on. And if I hadn't just relatively recently come from Thailand, I probably would have been joining in. So it's not like I'm trying to score points here. But what was interesting to me was to see the difference between the two circumstances and that when we had everything that in theory should have made us comfortable and happy, I didn't experience anything like the deep happiness that I experienced in Thailand. So what was the difference? As far as I can tell, it was something about simplicity and actually not having options. In Thailand, there was no choice. It was obvious that there was no secret stash of pillows and blankets and so on. So after a short struggle with discomfort, the mind just went quiet. But in England, there was the illusion of being able to control the environment and to make it better. So the mind was always looking for a more comfortable option, a more comfortable bed, and the tastiest food and the newest magazine and the hottest coffee and so on and so on. It was endless and it was exhausting. And that's not to say we should all turn into masochists. It's obvious that on one level we want to be comfortable. Some degree of comfort is helpful for our lives and it's helpful for our Dharma practice. But again, learning how much comfort is necessary is an aspect of wisdom. Learning for ourselves what is the middle way. And there's an essay on this topic by the American monk Tanisaro Bhikkhu. He calls it trading candy for gold, renunciation as a skill. And he describes uh, very well our tendency to always go for the easy option, the quick fix and the instant gratification, rather than what will benefit us more deeply and for the longer term. So he says... I might have to put on my glasses here. He says, there's something in all of us, there's something in all of us that would rather not give things up. We'd prefer to keep the candy and get the gold. But maturity teaches us that we can't have everything. That to indulge in one pleasure often involves denying ourselves another, perhaps better one. Thus, we need to establish clear priorities for investing our limited time and energies where they'll give the most lasting returns. That means giving top priority to the mind. Material things and social relationships are unstable and easily affected by forces beyond our control. 
so the happiness they offer is fleeting and undependable. But the well-being of a well-trained mind can survive even aging, illness and death. To train the mind, though, requires time and energy. This is one reason why the pursuit of true happiness demands that we sacrifice some of our external pleasures. So as Tanasara Bhikkhu says, it's normal not to want to give things up. But if we're serious about experiencing true happiness, we need to give top priority to the mind. So the fourth aspect of being on retreat that supports this prioritizing of happiness or mental happiness or sukha is slowing down. A few days ago I mentioned the general principle that the slower you go, the more you know. And again, this can be a challenging practice for many of us. We tend to live in our heads, our intellects, and increasingly in a digital world. And in this world, everything moves incredibly fast. So it's not surprising that when we come on retreat, we might find ourselves at first zooming around, getting caught in impatience and restlessness due to the slower pace of life here. But again, as our nervous systems do eventually adjust to this different way of being, one that's much more embodied, we start to appreciate how bodily calm supports mental calm and vice versa. So how fast we're moving can be a useful feedback mechanism that reveals the depth of our mindfulness. This doesn't mean that we always have to be creeping about at a, at a snail's pace. We need to let the speed of our movements slow down naturally in an unforced way. And when appropriate, there are times when we might need to move more quickly. It's pretty obvious that if you hear the fire bell, for example, that's a time when we want to leave the building quickly and not be practicing lift moving, placing, and so on. This is the discernment aspect of mindfulness I referred to early, earlier, sati sampajanya, which is mindfulness with clear comprehension. Under normal retreat circumstances, you might like to at times play to experiment with this moving more slowly just to see how it feels. Don't worry about how you look. We're all friends here, so we don't mind if you turn into a zombie occasionally. But it, we can learn a lot by really coming more fully into embodiment, directly experiencing the interplay of experiences at all six sense doors. This can be an intense source of happiness, of delight, of bliss. And then again, from that slowing down, we can come into a very profound stillness. And this stillness emerges on deeper and deeper levels. And at times it can offer a happiness that's beyond ordinary understanding. This is the fifth support that the retreat container provides this 
depth of stillness and it might not always be available to at that um, at the deepest level but we can still keep orienting to it to get used to it to become familiar with it and eventually we can start to abide in that stillness more and more of the time and the stillness that I'm referring to here is an inner stillness it's one that we can take with us after the retreat ends because it's no longer dependent on particular conditions it's a result of having put down the burden of that constant doing, doing, doing that I referred to earlier. So as we get used to the stillness and keep orienting to it, that doing starts to feel more and more painful and we very naturally let go on deeper and deeper levels. And the image of the Buddha, to me, represents that deep stillness. He's sitting balanced and at ease. And in many representations of the Buddha, he's got one hand on the earth. So he's very directly connecting to the stillness and the stability of the earth beneath him. And like this one, he usually has a very quiet, serene smile, which to me suggests that he's experiencing the sukha of this deep stillness now for some of us this depth of happiness that arises from mental pleasure instead of sense pleasure might be hard to imagine but all of the training that we're doing on retreats like this is training the mind to go in that direction so a couple of years ago I read somewhere that in the Tibetan tradition the word in Tibetan that means meditation literally means getting used to it. And this idea of getting used to it, it can be interpreted in many different ways. And for myself, I've found it helpful to think of it as getting used to whenever we find ourselves in new territory of any kind. This meditation is helping us get used to it. And as we get used to it, as we get used to these more skillful states, these wholesome mental states of happiness, they become stronger and stronger. It's almost like they develop their own momentum and the amount of effort we need to maintain them becomes less and less. And at times we experience them as a kind of positive chain reaction where happiness kind of kick-starts a wholesome set of skillful qualities and each one arises naturally and flows into the next and the next and the next in an effortless upward spiral. So when I think of this natural upward spiral, I also think of um, the image, bless you, the image of eagles. You may have seen, oh, we're beyond time. The clock's just fallen off. <laughs> so I was just referring to if you've seen the images of eagles when they soar on thermal updrafts. I've had the opportunity in Australia quite a few years ago now 
I was uh, hiking with a friend in the Warrumbungle National Park. And this is an area of uh, very ancient and jagged volcanic peaks. And the name Warrumbungle apparently means crook means crooked mountains in the Gamalaroi language. The Gamalaroi are the local Aboriginal people who are the traditional owners of that land. So my friend and I were hiking on these dramatic peaks. And on one of them, known as the bread knife, we were so high that we were almost at the same level as these giant wedge-tailed eagles. These eagles are huge birds. They have wingspans of uh, over two meters. And they can soar for hours on end without a single beat of their wings. So they can get up to 1,800 meters, apparently, sometimes even higher. And on this occasion, they were so close that I could see all the detail on the small feathers of their underbellies. And it was really a magnificent sight to see these huge birds just soaring and soaring and soaring on wide, wide wings without any effort whatsoever. So you might keep that image of these eagles in mind as I read quite a long passage from the suttas that some of you may be familiar with. It's a description of how the momentum of our own practice also develops quite naturally through this chain reaction of happiness and skillful mental states. Now, this particular sequence starts with paying attention to our ethical conduct, our sila, to use the Pali word, which is our commitment to non-harming. If you remember back to the opening night of the retreat, where we all undertook the training to refrain from harmful actions and instead to cultivate beneficial actions. This is what's referred to as virtue in the passage that I'm about to read. And when this virtue is strong, skillful states develop almost of their own momentum from that foundation of ethical conduct, just like the eagles soaring on the thermal updrafts. And then stage by stage, these skillful mental qualities lead all the way upwards to the highest possible happiness, the peace of Nibbana. And in this passage, that's referred to as the further shore. So Nibbana is the further shore. So just settle back and let these words wash over you. For a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue, there is no need for an act of will. May freedom from remorse arise in me. It's in the nature of things that freedom from remorse arises in a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue. For a person free from remorse, There is no need for an act of will. May joy arise in me. It is in the nature of things that joy arises in a person free from remorse. For a joyful person, there is no need for an act of will. May rapture arise in me. 
It's in the nature of things that rapture arises in a joyful person. For a rapturous person, there is no need for an act of will. May my body be serene. It is in the nature of things that a rapturous person grows serene in body. For a person serene in body, there is no need for an act of will. May I experience pleasure. It is in the nature of things that a person serene in body experiences pleasure. For a person experiencing pleasure, there is no need for an act of will. May my mind grow concentrated. It is in the nature of things that the mind of a person experiencing pleasure grows concentrated. For a person whose mind is concentrated, there is no need for an act of will. May I know and see things as they actually are. It is in the nature of things that a person whose mind is concentrated knows and sees things as they actually are. And the quote, the passage continues for a few more stages until it comes to this. For a dispassionate person, there is no need for an act of will. May I realize the knowledge and vision of release. It is in the nature of things that a dispassionate person realizes the knowledge and vision of release. In this way, mental qualities lead on to mental qualities. Mental qualities bring mental qualities to their consummation for the sake of going from the near to the further shore. Nibbana. So thank you for your attention. May we all experience ever-increasing sukha, happiness and peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.